Please take your Bibles once again, turn to Luke 5, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 26. Luke 5, 17 to 26. Verse 17 says, On one of those days, this is early in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, and he was, perhaps, back in Capernaum. He was teaching and healing, and for the first time now in Luke, we find that the religious leaders were there. Uh, The theologians had gathered. Uh, The spiritual intelligentsia uh, were present now. So let me set the scene for you. There were first religious experts. They had come from far and wide Even from Jerusalem, they had come. And they were there, presumably, to examine and to evaluate the Lord Jesus. And so the creation was going to sit in judgment on the Creator. The Pharisees were there. They were the holy ones. Not spiritual rabble. They were the holy ones. The teachers of the law were there, verse 17. These were the experts in the interpretation of and the exposition of the law of Moses. And the scribes were there, verse 21. They would later become known as as rabbis. And they also were experts in interpreting the scriptures and in teaching the scriptures. And they were coming to examine the Lord Jesus. But in truth, they were the ones who were really under the microscope. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, people don't sit in judgment on Jesus. Jesus sits in judgment on them. So they were under the microscope. What would they do with Jesus? You're under the microscope. What have you done with Jesus? How will you respond? How will you respond today to Jesus? If you're not a Christian, you're under the microscope. You're not sitting in judgment. You're not evaluating Jesus. He sits in judgment on you. What will you do with Jesus? Will you believe and be saved? Or will you denounce him as they did and be lost? So the religious leaders were there, uh, the religious experts. And then there was the paralyzed man, and you read about him in verses 18 And 19, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on a roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. A study in brevity and succinct storytelling right there. Well, you know the story, and if Jesus was in Capernaum, which he probably was, perhaps he was at the home of Peter, 
Well, whichever house it is, it was crowded. So much so that the four friends were unable uh, to get the paralyzed man to Jesus. You see, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. But they couldn't get the man to Jesus. So they climbed to the roof, and they break through the roof, and they lower the man, and they set him at the feet of Jesus. Now, they had expected to hear the word heal. But they heard the word forgive. And you wonder, now, were they disappointed? Were they troubled? Were they upset? We wanted healing. You speak of forgiveness. Were they troubled by this? Whatever the immediate reaction was, we know that by and large, by the end of the incident, amazement, the scripture says, seized them all. And when people went away, they said, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now ask yourself, what was the most extraordinary thing they saw? So when they walked away, what were they thinking about? Extraordinary things. What's the most extraordinary thing that struck them? What's the most extraordinary thing that they observed in this historical incident? And as we think about that, we're going to examine this account under three headings. We'll think first of the supreme importance of forgiveness... And then the solitary source of forgiveness. And then the astounding nature of forgiveness. And then, Lord willing, some quick lessons at the end. We'll think, first of all, about the supreme importance of forgiveness. So if you could ask God today for anything, what would you ask Him? Imagine being able to ask God today for anything. What would you ask for? What would you see as your greatest need? See the connection with the children's talk. What do you see as your greatest need for which then you would ask God to provide? I listened this week to uh, a YouTube video and saw an article about that, about a man by the name of Herbert Fingeret. He was 97 at the time of recording. He was a philosopher who taught philosophy at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He wrote a book in 1996 on death. And he argued that people who fear their own death, they're irrational. He says, when you die, there is nothing. Why should we fear the absence of being when we won't be there ourselves to suffer it? So 20 years later, now he's 97, he's facing his own mortality, and he began to realize that he was wrong. After teaching for decades, influencing young people and saying things like this, he realizes at 97 that he was wrong. He realizes that uh, death began to frighten him and he couldn't deal with it. Couldn't figure out a way out. He had taught philosophy. 
And he'd also written extensively and had published a book on deception. And he wondered now at 97 whether he had been deceiving himself. He says this, it haunts me, the idea of dying soon, whether there's a good reason or not. He says, I walk around often and ask myself. He's walking in the video. He's walking with a walker. He's 97 years old and he's weak. But he walks around, he says, and I ask myself, what's the point of it all? There must be something I'm missing. I wish I knew. He died in late 2018. What's his greatest need? What was his greatest need? Now imagine a world which is not even remotely sensitive to the needs of handicapped people as is our country. So you've got no hospitals, you have no OHIP, you have no financial assistance, uh, you have no wheelchairs, you have no ramps, you have no elevators such as we have use of in this building. So this man... This man who is lame, this man who is paralyzed, this man who can't move is in a desperate way living in a world that does not provide for him and cares little for him. Now, he's in a desperate way, you see. And so now these friends, he has some friends, and they bring him to Jesus. And when the men hear, you're forgiven, what do they say? Do they think to themselves, look, forgiveness doesn't pay the rent. And forgiveness doesn't put food on the table. And do they think they're imagining themselves speaking to Jesus and they want to say to him, look, this man needs to be able to walk. Forgiveness isn't going to help. You need to understand his situation. You need to understand his trouble. You need to understand that he needs to be able to walk. That's how serious this is. So please, understand his plight and heal him. In verse 20, we read that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And what our Lord Jesus is doing there is saying, You need to understand what the real problem is here. You understand You need to understand what the real trouble is here, what his greatest need is. This man can't move his body, but he needs forgiveness above all things. What our Lord Jesus is saying is that you need to prioritize spiritual need over material need. He will address the material need, but he prioritizes and understands the absolute essential nature of this spiritual need, of this forgiveness. So what our Lord Jesus is saying is this. He is saying, set before me a North Korean man who has no religious freedom at all. Set before me a Nigerian girl who is enslaved by wicked men. Set before me a Cuban who is not allowed to provide the most basic needs for his family. Set before me a Canadian who struggles with 
What is it we struggle with? What is it we lack? You set them before me with all of their desperate need, and I'll say to you that the greatest need they have is forgiveness. That's their great need, bar none. Why is that? Why is this the great need? Why does Jesus look at a paralyzed man and say, man, your sins are forgiven. What can I do? What's the best thing I can do for you? You're forgiven. Why is that? Well, first of all, because sin is terrible. Sin is terrible. The Bible defines sin oh, in just a dizzying variety of ways. It says that sin is rebellion against lawful authority. There is divine authority over this universe. God's law. And sin is rebellion against that. Rebellion against the law of the Creator. Sin is transgression. You have stepped over the bounds of God's law. You have transgressed. You've stepped over and beyond the lines that God has drawn. He's written it in His Word and He's written it on your heart. And you've gone beyond that. Sin is missing the mark. God has set a standard. And you've missed. You've woefully missed. Horrendously missed. You've come infinitely far short of the standards that God has set. Sin is defilement. You are, you are filthy. You are vile. You are defiled. You are disgusting in the sight of God. Sin is guilt, and not, not feelings of guilt. We have feelings of guilt, and we think that's horrendous. This is infinitely worse. You can feel guilty about things about which you're not guilty. No, no, this is objective guilt, real guilt, true guilt. You are standing before the judge of all the earth, and you are guilty of sin and worthy of wrath. And the wrath of God, we read in John 3, abides over you. It rests over you. It's the sword of Damocles hanging over your head, about to fall in infinite judgment. That's what sin is like. Augustine said that sin is pride. And sin is man turning in on himself. He is made for God, but he turns away from God, and he turns in on himself. What a... Horrific picture that is. He's turned away from the fountain of living waters. He's turned from the true light. He's turned from true knowledge. He's turned from the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And he's turned in on himself. He is self-absorbed, self-focused. He himself is the center of his universe. And so he has rebelled against the authority of God. He has responded in a treasonous way to the reign of his creator. So yes, sin is terrible. Secondly, sin is damning. Sin is damning. Every sin you commit will damn you to hell. Every single solitary sin you commit will damn you to hell. Acts, uh, Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins 
shall die. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Our sin makes us guilty. One sin plunged the human race into judgment. One sin, one of your sins will damn you to hell. That's why you need forgiveness. That's why this is so desperate a need. And you can think about these people we talked about. You can give them freedom, and you can give them food, and you can give them whatever they need and whatever they want, and they will sink into hell, free and fed and rich, but they'll suffer damnation forever. They need forgiveness because sin damns. Each sin will bring your soul into judgment Each sin brings infinite judgment. You see, it matters who you sin against. The Bible says that sin at its heart is sin against God. Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. David has sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, sinned against the people. But he himself says in the presence of God, against you and you only have I sinned. That's what sin is all about. It's against God. So you betray me, that's a small thing. You betray your country, they put you to death. You sin against the infinite gods. You deserve infinite punishment. You deserve to suffer forever. And one sin brings infinite judgment upon you. That's why this is so desperate. That's why Jesus looks at a paralyzed man and he says, your greatest need, I need to forgive you. Each sinner has endless sins. Think about that. Endless sins. There's no end in sight for your sin. They say some people have low self-esteem. In truth, nobody has self-esteem low enough. We simply do not know how bad we are. You have no idea how many charges are laid against you in the courtroom of God. No idea. No idea. I think if we knew just how bad we were, our brains would explode. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every sinner has endless sins. You need forgiveness. And every sinner is helpless. There's nothing we can do. Hebrews 10 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Nothing you can do can deal with your sin. Nothing you can do can earn forgiveness. With man, says Jesus in Matthew 19, salvation is impossible. Can't be done. People say, well, I'm going to give money to the church. I'm going to go on a pilgrimage to this place. I'm going to do all kinds of good deeds. I heard a good message, and so now I want to go. I'm motivated. I'm pumped. I'm going to be really, really good, and I'm going to involve myself in all kinds of good endeavors, and I'm going to do this and that and the other, and the fact of the matter is it's just going to make things worse. What it's like then when you try and earn salvation and earn your way to heaven and earn the forgiveness of sins, you're doing what the Hindus do. You're thinking that you can cleanse yourself by jumping into the Ganges. And the Ganges is a filthy river. 
It's a filthy river. And they think, do these Hindus, that if I bathe in the Ganges, I'll be clean. In truth, you bathe in the Ganges, and the only result is that now you're covered in pretty much excrement. That's all it does. It makes you more vile. There's nothing, we're helpless. Nothing you can do. And you see, that's your situation. And the frightening thing is that God's never going to change. God's never going to start grading on a curve. He's never going to say, well, you know, I think I was wrong about this. He's never going to lower his standards. He's always going to be holy and always demand perfection and he'll always want to judge sin. Not only does God never change, but he's never going to grow weak. He's never going to get to the point where he says, well, I'm too tired to deal with this. He's never going to be unable to deal with sin. What that means then is that every sinner's situation is desperate. Whether he's paralyzed, whether he's enslaved, whether he's in any manner of distress, his greatest problem is sin and his greatest need is forgiveness. If you're forgiven today, if you're a Christian today, if all your sins have been cleansed, your greatest need has been met. You couldn't ask for anything greater from God. You are extraordinarily blessed. And you need then to look at the rest of your life with all of its troubles. You need to look at that in light of this. And if you're not a Christian and your sins are not yet forgiven, the first thing you do, you you start to tune me out and you go right to Christ. You walk out of here and you go and have dealings with God first. That's what you need to do. So I'm saying that this is the greatest need. The supreme need is forgiveness. Secondly, the solitary source of forgiveness. The solitary source of forgiveness. Verse 21, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question and they said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins But God, let me tell you first of all about what they got right. I'll tell you about what they got right. And they were right, only God can forgive sins. Now, what if this paralyzed man had said, you know, Jesus speaks to him and he says, look, I've got two problems, Lord. One, I'm paralyzed. I'd like you to deal with that. And two, I just can't find it within myself to forgive myself. Well, you see, the religious leaders say, look, only God can forgive sins. And and they're right. And only God can forgive sins because sin is against God. Psalm 51, verse 4. What's more, 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. It is thumbing your nose at the God of the universe. It is transgressing the law of that God. It is disobeying the law of your creator. It is rebellion against God's authority and it is treason against God's rule. Sin is against God. And the Bible, frankly, 
doesn't care whether you forgive yourself. It never tells us to forgive ourselves. It's only concerned about whether God has forgiven you. That's your only danger. Has God forgiven you? Now look, Christians struggle with this. And they feel as if they can't forgive themselves. And they still feel guilty about their sins. And and that is a real problem. That's a real struggle. But the problem is that it's been misdiagnosed. And the treatment is wrong. You see, people feel guilty not because they haven't forgiven themselves. They feel guilty because they don't really believe that God has forgiven them. That's the issue. That's the real trouble. When Christians struggle with all of this, and people say, oh, well, you know, the reason is, is you haven't forgiven yourself. And then they repeat that ad nauseum. But that's not the real issue. That's a misdiagnosis and a mistreatment. The real problem, the real reason they feel still guilty is because, well, they haven't believed properly in the forgiveness of God. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You really believe that, then all is well, you see. Now, this is a big issue, but this is where you start. And I would argue strongly, this is where you start to deal with it. It's not an issue of forgiving myself. It's an issue of really trusting the forgiveness of God. Because only God can forgive. That's our great need. So this is what the religious leaders got right, that only God can forgive. Now I'll tell you what they got wrong. You see, they had two choices. They could have said, look, only God can forgive. He's God, so let's believe in him. Could have done that. Or they could have done this. Only God can forgive. He's not God, so let's denounce him. That's what they chose. Now, should they have believed, oh, he's God. Let's believe in him. Well, yes, they should have. Just go over for a moment to Luke 7 and verses 18 to 23. We won't read the whole passage because um, I'm fighting against time here. So Luke 7, verses 18 to 23. But uh, John the Baptist is asking, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus' response is in verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. These are what... Messiah, when he comes, is going to do. When Messiah comes, he's going to do things like this, which will authenticate his message. This is what I'm doing, says Jesus. Remind John about that. John's having trouble right now. Reminding him about that, he'll understand. And John does. Well, you see, then, of course, the Lord Jesus does a miracle. And he does the miracle in order to show them, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm the one to be expected. I'm the one whom God promised. I'm the sent one of God. I'm the God is with us that was promised in the Old Covenant. 
I'm the one you were expecting, and I'm doing this miracle to show you that and show that, therefore, I can forgive. They got that wrong, tragically. Let me add one more thing here. There is one solitary source of forgiveness. It's Jesus. They wanted to take that right away from him. They were wrong. That's what they got wrong. We also need to understand that Jesus is the one solitary source of forgiveness, and he does not extend it to Roman Catholic priests. It's not as if Jesus can pronounce forgiveness on on penitent sinners, and the only other people who can do that is Roman Catholic priests. Well, that's what Catholicism tells us. They will use a verse like this, John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And they say, ah, that was told to the apostles. The priests are the descendants and the followers of Peter. So only priests can say, you're forgiven. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the Bible teaches. What that verse is saying and what the rest of the New Testament is saying is that we as the church, we as Christians can say, there is forgiveness available when you believe in Christ. We don't make pronouncements and say, go, you're forgiven, go in peace, my son. We don't do that. That's Jesus. We don't pronounce, we proclaim. We say, here's Jesus He will forgive you if you believe. So no, there's one solitary source of forgiveness. It's Jesus. That's the second thing. Thirdly, the astounding nature of forgiveness. When people walked away, we see in verse 26, they said, we've seen extraordinary things. Now, were they talking about the healing? Or were they talking about the forgiveness? To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. I fear what they were thinking. But I will tell you this, that we know what actually is the most extraordinary thing in the passage, and it's forgiveness. That's the amazing thing. That's the thing that is jaw-dropping. That's the thing that should make you and I walk away from here today thinking, that is incredible. It's the forgiveness. And the forgiveness is extraordinary because it is blood-bought. It's blood-bought. What did it cost to save you? What did it cost for you to be clean? What did it cost for you to be forgiven? The blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.24 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But now, the New Testament says, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's a good hymn we sang. Behold the Lamb of God. Because here is the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb that God provided. Here's the sacrifice that God sets before us. Here's the spotless Lamb. Nothing clean in this world. God sends a spotless Lamb. Here's a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Here's a Lamb who is slain and His blood cleanses from all sin. But it's the Son of God who is the Lamb of God. Your forgiveness comes at a great price. Ephesians 1 says, In Him, in Jesus, we have 
redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In him, we have redemption through his blood, is what Paul says. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it costs to save you. Listen to Ryle. Ryle says, terribly black must be the guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must be the weight of human sin which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony in Gethsemane and cry on Golgotha, my God, why have you forsaken me? How horrific must your sin be in mine that it requires such a high cost That's why this forgiveness is extraordinary, because it's blood-bought. It's extraordinary because it's complete. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That word blotted out means to obliterate. It means to wipe something entirely off the page. Here, is a page you can see writing. Imagine if I just went like that, and it's all gone. That's what's happened to you. That's what's happened to your sin. It's been wiped clean. It's been blotted out completely. Micah 7.19 says, Your sins are all cast into the depths of the sea. There's a writer by the name of John Mackay who said this about, about that text. He says, As every soldier of Egypt that pursued the children of Israel was drowned in the sea and that as not a single Egyptian soldier crawled onto the bank to continue to torment Israel, so not one of your sins can crawl up out of the sea and continue to torment you. God has cast it into the sea. Once and for all, you're justified. You're completely forgiven. Spafford. You know Spafford, Horatius Spafford, wrote, It is well with my soul. And he wrote this verse. And this verse he wrote as the ship he was sailing on across the Atlantic came to the spot in the Atlantic where just a little while before another ship had gone down to the bottom carrying with it his four daughters. His four daughters. And he came to that spot And he wrote this hymn, and he wrote this verse, and found it to be of extraordinary comfort. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And so, what a dark day that must have been. What a dark moment when you are there at the spot where they have been lost. And where do you look for comfort? You find comfort in God. What is it about God that comforts you so much? It is that wondrously he has forgiven all my sin. And he finds extraordinary comfort in that extraordinary fact. Sins completely forgiven. It's extraordinary because that forgiveness is gracious. You've not deserved it. You've not deserved one iota of all that God does for you by way of goodness and kindness. 
Colossians 2.13 says, God has made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses. That word forgiven there is a different one than in, in Ephesians 1.7. And this emphasizes the graciousness of the forgiveness. That is, he, he didn't have to do it. And you didn't earn this. It wasn't, the, it wasn't incumbent upon him to do it. He didn't have to do it. It's not his job. Some French philosopher, I think it was Voltaire, said, well, God has to forgive. That's his job. It's not his job. He's not required to forgive you. He forgives because he's full of grace. And so he puts it behind his back where he can't see it. He forgets about it. He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite distance. He covers it up. He puts it on the the scapegoat, and he sends the scapegoat into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That's what he's done with your sin. He didn't have to do it. He did it because he loves you. He cancels the debt. You owed him millions. You owed him millions and millions of dollars. And he just canceled it. It's gracious. It's extraordinary forgiveness because it's gracious. And it's extraordinary forgiveness because it has eternal implications. It has implications for this life we've forgiven and we walk through this life then as the blood-bought children of the living God who are forgiven of all of our sins, but it has eternal implications as well. It means that one day when you stand before God, and you will, you cannot avoid that day. You can't escape that day. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when you do, you'll be all right. Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Same hymn says, about that day and about us, with joy shall I lift up my head. I will lift up my head to look at my creator. I will lift up my head and look at my judge. But I will lift up my head and look at my Savior, and that's why with joy shall I lift up my head because I'm forgiven. I have nothing to fear. I have no dread of that day. And that's why so many of our friends have gone before us with great confidence. They've fallen into the grave. They've fallen asleep, unafraid of death, unconcerned about the judgment because they're forgiven. Because Jesus said to the man, woman, your sins, they're forgiven. And so they're not afraid. And that's why Marilyn died as she did. That's why Ruth died as she did. They're forgiven. MacArthur says, John MacArthur says that there's a, he ran across a grave in New York State, somewhere in New York State, and and on the tombstone, it said one thing, it said forgiven. You can die like that if you're a Christian. You can have that put on your tombstone. Forgiven. You're okay. Bold shall I stand on that great day. Our response to this, like Spafford, 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Ah, your lunch awaits. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got four quick lessons. Trust me, be all right. First lesson, let's bring people to Jesus. Like those men, let's bring people to Jesus. Now you you got to bring Jesus and the people together. So maybe, maybe you bring them here, those, those unbelievers. Bring them here. Or somehow bring them to him by giving them a booklet, giving them a pamphlet, giving them a Bible. Or bring them here under the word or bring him to them. Put a Bible in their hands and a tract in their grasp and tell them about Jesus. But somehow, overcome obstacles. There's all kinds of obstacles, not the least of which is fear. Overcome that, as did they, and bring them to Jesus. Bring them together so that by the grace of God, their deepest need might be met. Secondly, consider the extraordinary hardness of men's hearts. In verse 21, it says, that they refused to see him for who he is. They whispered amongst themselves, and they talked amongst themselves, and they talked with their own hearts, and they said, who is this character? He is just blaspheming. Rather than bow the knee before him, they denounced him. How hard is the human heart? And we are surrounded by people like that which means that we need to be men and women of prayer. It's not enough to just present the gospel to them. We need to pray like crazy so that God will take that word and drive it to their hearts because they're not going to come left to themselves. That's why this stuff was prayed over. Because as our brother said, it won't do a thing unless the Lord blesses it. So we need to be men and women of prayer. We have been men and women of prayer, you say. I agree, more so, always more so, more and more, more and more men and women of prayer. Thirdly, consider Jesus' insight into the hearts of men. Verse 22 says, when he perceived their thoughts, he knows your thoughts. All things are open to him. There are no secrets. There are no hidden compartments in your mind and in your heart to which he's not privy. Proverbs 5.21 says, A man's ways are before the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. J.C. Ryle said, We can keep no secrets from Christ. <laughs> There's no place you can go to indulge in sin, but that God sees it. There's no crevice in your mind where you can hide iniquitous thoughts from the knowledge of your God. We need to walk in light of the fact that Jesus sees everything. You have no privacy. People are all worried about privacy these days and all oh, big brother and all the rest of it. And that's fine. You worry about that. But, you know, the biggest problem is that you got no privacy before God. 
We need to live in light of that. And lastly, let nothing keep you from Christ. Now, I'm talking to you if you're not a Christian. Let nothing keep you from Christ. Let nothing keep you from Christ. If you want to be saved, if you want forgiveness, don't stop. Don't dawdle. Don't put off. Don't procrastinate. Don't leave it for another day because you may not live through this one. Don't close your eyes tonight before you close with God. Don't fall asleep tonight because you might not wake up. Don't fall asleep before you have settled things with God. Don't lay your head on the pillow until you've laid your head on the chest of Christ and found rest in Him. Don't put it off. Young people and children, don't say, I'm going to have fun, and then when I get as old as Pastor Muller, then I'm going to get religious. You may not get this old. Don't put it off till tomorrow. The Bible says, today, today, day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace and the extraordinary, extraordinary reality of the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. Save souls and help us to love him evermore, for he has forgiven us. In his name we pray.